Good morning, everybody. As you, some of you may know, Rachel and I have had a couple of weeks that have been a little bit rough. We've, uh, our sewer line sort of did some bad things and we had to have that replaced. So for the last two weeks, we've been a little bit displaced, not able to use our water and our toilet. We spent some time in a hotel and so I was talking with the guys that came this week and they dug up a big 10-foot trench all through our front yard to replace the sewer line and we were out there chatting and I was like, you know, the house is 1943. It's actually like if you stop and think about it, it's kind of amazing that a sewer system lasts 80 years. You know, it's made out of cast iron and then we found out some of it was terracotta. I don't even know if I told Rachel that yet. So it was a mess because when you've got a system like that, you know, the roots get in and it starts to break it up and it becomes a mess. And unfortunately, the first sign of it using, losing its usefulness is uh, having gross stuff that you don't want come up in your basement, come up through your basement, through the drain. And when gross things bubble up, you are forced to start to pay attention to the entire system to get to the heart of the problem. I was talking with Ken about it. He's like, Emily, there's a metaphor in there. And you're weak from sorry. You've got to lean into that metaphor. And I was like, oh, oh, I'm going to lean into that metaphor. You know, the same is true of the gospel. <laughs> when gross things start to manifest as a way of, as a product of the way that we've been telling the story of Jesus, that's when we have to step back and start to consider the whole. And the voice that has been most helpful for Ken and I in that process as we've started to see some, you know, some harmful things that have been happening as the way we've been telling the story of Jesus um, is to start to approach the story through a new lens. And the lens that's been most helpful for us is through Rene Girard and scapegoat theory. So for Lent here, our theme has been, what is the meaning of the cross and resurrection? And so for the last four weeks, Ken and I have been incorporating different parts of scapegoat theory into our sermons just to help us try and make a little bit more sense of Jesus's message when he was alive and teaching. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to actually just go right to the heart of it. We're going to go right to the cross and the resurrection themselves so that we can start working out some of the implications of this for the next two weeks for Palm Sunday and Easter. So some of you guys here have heard us talk about atonement theory through the lens of Rene Girard. Atonement theory just means it's a theory about what happened on the cross. So when you hear people talk about atonement theory, that's all that means. What did it mean for God to make reconciliation with humans? So I'd say whether this is all new for you or whether this is a retelling, I just invite us to sort of just relax into it because I think it's good to just hear it every now and again. So Rene Girard was an anthropologist and he wrote about how humans discovered a mechanism over time that prevents violence from breaking out in our various human groups. Right? And that means from our smaller units, like families, to much larger units, like nation states or empires. And so to save our various communities from self-implosion due to rivalries, group members can identify a scapegoat on which that we can project all of our collective rivalries and envy and anxiety. So scapegoats are used to control the amount of violence that takes place in anxious groups. Right? So the idea is, is if we can, we can channel like all of the angry energy, all the anxious energy of a group onto one person or onto a minority of people, then we can prevent the violence from becoming widespread. Right? So instead of all against all, it's all against one. So scapegoats often stand apart from a group for some reason. It could be that maybe they dress a little shabbily, or it could be that they're super rich. Perhaps they smell bad by cultural standards. Maybe the color of their skin is in the minority or their sexual orientation. 
right? Something that makes them stand apart. And then once a scapegoat is identified, the group succumbs to a form of mob mentality and falsely accuses the scapegoat of a taboo crime in order to dehumanize them. Right, so a ringleader stands up, makes a false accusation against the scapegoat, and then the rest of the crowd starts to mirror the ringleader's violent desire. And almost always, the scapegoat is innocent of the charge that they are accusing the person of, but the ringleader and the crowd are guilty of it. So I was trying to think of a good like, non-political example this morning, because I feel like we can see it in lots of different places. And I was thinking about, like, if you've got kids, and you have, let's say, like 10 kids come over for a birthday party, and you hear them all, they're all down in the basement playing with the various toys, and suddenly you hear some of the kids saying, you can't play with the group anymore. You're not good at sharing. What that's probably happening there is that the whole group is having trouble sharing and working things out. Right? It's actually probably true of the entire group of kids, but what they've done is they found one kid they could pick on and tell them, you're not sharing, you can carry that load, you go sit over there, and then they exile them. Right? So instead of fighting with each other, they all kind of gang up on one kid. And once you identify a scapegoat, you bully them, exile them, isolate them, fire them, incarcerate them, kill them, deport them, whatever the means is, and the violence against that innocent brings a temporary sense of peace and unity to the anxious group. Right? So in other words, scapegoating works. It works temporarily in preventing wider violence. And it channels this rivalrous energy and it redirects it against one person or a minority of people. So with that little framework in mind, let's look at the story of Jesus' life through a Girardian lens to see how this fits into the larger narrative. Jesus was born into a large-scale system of envy and rivalry and anxiety. Where he was, there had been several revolts against the Roman Empire that had taken place before, during, and after his life. And in addition to that larger rivalry that was going on within his larger, I don't want to say nation-state, but empire, there was also feuding that persisted within his own Jewish community, especially in regards to how they should relate to the Roman occupiers. And when the threat of violence is really bad, when you can feel it, when it's like near at hand, almost like a powder keg that's about to go off, that's when Girard's theory tells us that full-scale war can be postponed or delayed by identifying a series of scapegoats that can temporarily relieve group pressure. Right? So you, you kill one scapegoat to relieve the pressure, and then things are peaceful for a while, and then they get anxious again, so you identify another scapegoat. And this was true in Jesus' life, all the way up to the time when war actually broke out about 40 years after his death. Like these various false messiahs and rebel groups, they hung on crosses throughout the land at that time. Right? So Rome, they crucified people who protested against their rule too boldly. Thousands of them. And crucifixion represented Rome's scorn for like lower class people. It was a kind of death that they reserved for people that were sort of considered scum or lower than. Most especially people who challenged or resisted their power. So Jesus was not the only scapegoat of his time. He wasn't the only man who hung on a cross. He was one of many scapegoats onto which people channeled their violent energy in order to temporarily avoid this widespread violence that did eventually come. Because once a group uses scapegoating to maintain peace, it will do so over and over and over again until the violence overwhelms them. 
So as a Jewish man in Roman-occupied territory, Jesus perfectly suited the role of a scapegoat. He was different. He was part of an oppressed minority group. And Ken spoke last week about how Jesus carried the stigma of a mamzer. He was a child of questionable paternity. Right? He was a bastard, if you will. And he was different, and his followers were different. They were the poor, and the religious outcasts, and women, and tax collectors, and prostitutes. And so even as Jesus stood apart, he was also deeply rooted in the traditions of his people, right? He was deeply rooted in the line of the Jewish prophets. And so in that vein, he spoke and he acted against these unjust power structures. And he did that through stories and through teachings and through healings. He went around and he defended the vulnerable. Like you think about the woman who was accused of adultery, who was about to be stoned. He said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. He stood up for that vulnerable woman. Or the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and had been a ritual outcast in her community. He championed those who had mental illnesses, who were scapegoated by their communities. Like the man that would get chained up by his fellow townspeople and then he would go and wander among the tombs. And because Jesus was doing this, he started to gain quite a following especially among the most marginalized people, but also among some of the people who had a little more social and religious power as well, who could see what he was about. And so people started whispering that Jesus might be this Messiah they'd heard about, this anointed one who was going to come and help establish God's reign on the earth. It was like something big is happening, is what they were saying to each other. And they were wondering, okay, so how is Jesus going to do this? How is he going to upend these big social systems that have caused us so much trouble? Is he going to lead a violent rebellion? As many people thought the Messiah might just lead a violent rebellion against Rome. Was he going to overthrow the empire? Was he going to become a high priest in the temple? Well, we know he didn't do any of those things. Because it turns out the best way to upend social systems is to start by loving the people who are right next to you. By loving your neighbors. And how do we do this? He said, well, he encouraged people who had more power to start to use it on behalf of people who didn't have it. He started preaching things like, if you've got two coats and your neighbor has none, well, give that person one of your coats. Sometimes the most revolutionary thing you can do is make a meal for someone who's sick. Jesus encouraged people to lay down their power rather than to seek power for the sake of the thing itself. Right? He taught, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, seek first love and righteousness and justice. And if you do that, all the rest of this stuff will be added to you. Right? He was saying create and support systems that take care of vulnerable people rather than take advantage of them. In your work, put people above money. And Jesus told the followers to renounce violence. And he said, love even your enemies, right? Lay down your rivalries And you're even supposed to pray for people who wish you harm or who position themselves as being like in competition or in rivalry with you. And the Roman Empire encouraged the opposite of all of these things that Jesus was teaching, as sometimes I think the American Empire does. The American message that we live under is like, go, be as successful as you can, make as much money as you can, get as much status as you can, out-compete with everybody else. And you've got to do it by yourself. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Be independent. Right? And this expectation is impossible for many of people for lots of reasons. It's toxic. And subscribing to that myth is actually making us sick. Jesus says, no, you need each other. 
You can't do this life alone. If you have more, give to people who have less. If you have a business, if you manage people in any way, take care of the people that you're in charge of, even if it means that the company takes a hit. Seek the good of every human, because when you do this, we're all going to benefit, and that's a better environment in which to live than one where people just carelessly step on others to get ahead. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all those things will be added. Right? And so as Jesus is preaching these things, people who were hoping to keep the peace with Rome became afraid that Jesus' message and his mass following might start to upend that tenuous stability that they were barely holding on to. And so in John 11, so the people said, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And then the Romans will come and they're going to take away both our temple and our nation. Right? So that's what the pressure was. And it was real. And it was intense. Right? Both the temple and the nation were taken away some 40 years later. Right? That wasn't, that wasn't like a, a false thing that could happen. Right? Sometimes entire structural systems are at stake when you start speaking up for the vulnerable. And by the time that people realize that entire systems could crumble, that's when the time is ripe for a scapegoat. So going on in John 11, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up and he said, you people know nothing at all. You don't realize it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Right? Caiaphas was a man who understood the power of channeling group energy onto one person. Right? He knew that if Jesus could be accused of blasphemy, of plotting to overthrow the Romans, enough people would start to rally around those charges that they could relieve the pressure valve that they were all feeling. Right, so soon after that, this is the week that Jesus would die, we read a story about him riding a donkey down into Jerusalem. It's what we usually talk about on Palm Sunday, which is next week. And when he's riding this donkey down into Jerusalem, crowds of Jesus' followers started to line the streets, and they were waving palm branches, and they were shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That's in John 12. Right? They're, crying. They're in support of him. They're like his biggest fans. They're laying down their cloaks for him to walk on. But oh, how fickle crowds can be. They so quickly can fall in line once a scapegoat is identified. Right? So here it is. It's on Sunday. The mob is shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the King of Israel. And by that Friday, they're shouting, Crucify him. Right? What happened between those days? It happened like that. Well, Gerard's theory tells us that when fear and rivalry reach a fever pitch, false accusations against a potential scapegoat usually surface, which is exactly what happened to Jesus that Passover week. And people who are otherwise inclined to support potential scapegoats almost always go along with the false accusations, even if they don't entirely believe them. And they will sacrifice almost every time an innocent person or a minority for the sake of what appears to be peace for the larger in-group. And this is what Gerard calls mimetic contagion. 
Right? We talked about this, I think, three weeks ago. The idea is that once a charge is made, humans in large groups will start to imitate the violent desires of the ringleaders. And it's almost like a disease that spreads through a crowd. Right? Mimetic contagion. And it only takes one person making a public accusation against another, a false accusation, to ignite this process. And then after a few people reinforce that charge, it becomes significantly more difficult in, for other people in the group to disagree. So you kind of acquiesce by being silent. There's a marketing professor that I read a few years back, Jonah Berger, I think he's at Penn State. And he writes this, he says, watch a focus group share opinions or a committee decide who to hire. And whoever goes first in a meeting and speaking about it has a big inc um, impact on the outcome because the other group members start to imitate the initiator's thoughts and desires. Does that make sense? So that's why like, if you lead in any sort of setting, it's always helpful to ask the person who's been quiet. You're like, what are you thinking? And by the way, it's okay to disagree with the rest of the group because you're actually hiding the perspectives of people because the first person who speaks will kind of rule the day. So two charges against Jesus materialized that week. Blasphemy and subversion against Rome. So when Jesus goes and he appears before Pontius Pilate, the Roman ruler, we're told that the crowd began to accuse him. This is in Luke 23, saying, we've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be the Messiah, a king. Now, surely not everybody in the crowd felt confident of those accusations. But on the whole, they mobilized around projecting their own disloyalties onto Jesus. Neither Pilate nor Herod could come up with anything with which to legally charge Jesus. Pilate, who was the Roman ruler, knew that Jesus was innocent of the accusations of plotting a revolt. He says it three times in the Gospel of John. And yet, even so, the crowd of people who so vehemently cheered Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem just a few days before that convinced themselves that he needed to die. So the Roman authorities then dressed Jesus, the scapegoat, like a buffoon. They gave him a false crown and a purple robe, and they beat him until he looked nothing like them. They disfigured him, they mocked him, and then they paraded him around town for everyone to see, forcing him to carry his own cross until he could no longer do so. And the more different the more other that he appeared, the easier it was to dehumanize him and kill him. We humans killed Jesus, not God. Some members of both communities, Jew and Gentile alike, representing all of humankind, executed Jesus. We took an innocent man and we accused and condemned and sacrificed him because of our sin. When, when scripture tells us that Jesus bore the sin of the world, what he was doing is he was bearing all of the projected anxiety, sin, disloyalties, and shame that we had cast onto him. He represented all of the innocent victims, past, present, and future, who have ever been excluded, harmed, and murdered. And the very words that Jesus spoke as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That unmasks the scapegoating system at work. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. An innocent man spoke them. He wasn't a somewhat innocent man. 
He wasn't a man even guilty of many things, but not the thing of which he was accused. He was a holy, innocent man carrying all of this violent energy. And then he spoke out to God concerning us, all of humanity. We don't know what we're doing. A hallmark of the Girardian cycle is the complete and utter belief by the oppressors or the people who are part of the mob that they are innocent. And they're convinced that they are, in fact, the victims. And in his moment of execution, what Jesus does is he extends grace and mercy for those who harmed him, and he forgave them. And the communal sacrifice of Jesus, it brought hushed relief to the watching crowd as the darkness came and filled the land. This ritual killing marked the finale after a week of so much turbulence that after he died, the bystanders just simply said, beat their breasts and walked away in silence. And the people that knew him, including the women from the Galilee, they stood at a distance in silence, just watching. And then preparations for the burial of the body started, and they were carried on till evening because it was the Sabbath. And if they didn't get it done, if they didn't want to leave the crosses on the or the bodies on the crosses for the next day, they had to get started on it. So it was like silence followed by this dutiful cleanup of the mess that they had wrought. And in many senses, Jesus' death is unremarkable in the sense that it bears resemblance to the stories of so many other scapegoats. And that includes the many before him who were crucified by Rome and the many after him who were also crucified by Rome. And yet at the same time, his story is incredibly remarkable in that he doesn't say sacrificed. Jesus was crucified and died, but Jesus also resurrected. And in doing that, what God did was he overturned our human verdict of the scapegoat. We humans declared an innocent man guilty and killed him. And God said, no, no, no. Your verdict is wrong. And I am going to overturn your verdict and I am going to declare that my son is innocent and I am going to raise him as a sign of me overturning your death sentence of him. He revoked our human pronouncement of guilt and declared this entire scapegoating system, this entire cycle of human violence, foolish and void. He said, it's finished. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It is finished. Go. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus thoroughly laid bare the purpose of continuous scapegoating events. It's to maintain group stability. And it displayed the futility of falsely accusing and doing violence to other people. It doesn't work. That doesn't lead to long-term peace. It can't be achieved through scapegoating. When we follow Jesus, we're renouncing our inclination to do that kind of violence to other people, to put a stop to that system. Right? So that is, in essence, what it means to follow Jesus. I'm just going to throw out the rest of my sermon and just talk. So it's been a week. I finished this on Tuesday. You know, we've been, we've been ta- I'm going to try and tie some of this together. You know, we've talked a lot in the last two or three weeks about how the word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. How the word paraclete in Greek, the word we use for Holy Spirit, means advocate. And that when we convert, we move from operating in the spirit of the accusing mob to operating and being infused by the spirit of the advocate. 
Right? When scapegoating events took place in the ancient world, they were often ritualized. Sometimes they would use an animal in place of a scapegoat or an innocent child. Right? You hear about the virgin woman jumping off of a volcano. Right? So they'd use an altar and they'd have a sacrifice on the altar. And so that required a priest and a sacrifice. And I think what's going on with Jesus' death is God is putting an end to all of that. So when we stand up here, God's saying, you don't need priests anymore. You don't need like a high priest making a sacrifice. That's done. What you're coming here to do is be infused by the spirit of the advocate, the spirit of Jesus. Like in the the song we sang this morning, it's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives within me. It's that spirit that's alive and well inside of us. We are the priesthood of all the believers is what the Bible tells us. It's not just like, oh, there's one priest who makes a sacrifice on our behalf. We are all priests, meaning we all mediate the presence of God in this world. And we come to this table and celebrate Jesus' death and his resurrection here, and we eat the body and the blood. What we're doing is not saying, oh, go and sacrifice. We're saying we're going to mark the end of all sacrifice. This is done. You know what it did? I won't take Cassie. I think Cassie's doing communion. I won't break it. We break the bread... Because we show the scars that it left. Scapegoating harms the people who are scapegoated. It breaks them as it broke Jesus. It causes them lots of blood as it cost Jesus. And when we come here, we remember that like, oh yeah, scapegoating harms people and we're not to do it anymore. So get filled with the spirit of the living Christ that lives in you and you go out and you mediate that news in the world. You go out and you advocate for the vulnerable. It's what we call the priesthood of all believers. You know, I'm going to take my sewage metaphor just a little bit further. (laughs) Don't worry, I won't be too disgusting, I don't think. When they came in to start to fix the sewer, they accidentally hit our water line. And our basement flooded. (laughs) And I remember I was at a hotel, because none of our water was working anyway at that point. And Rachel called me, and she had gone over there, and she's just like, oh my gosh, Emily, the whole basement is just filled with muddy water. It's the bean bags, it's the couch, it's the carpet, it's, you know. And so we're just sitting there counting our loss, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So I go over there, and luckily they sent somebody out, and they actually did an amazing job. They sent somebody out, and after two hours, I mean, the guy not only cleaned everything, cleaned the carpet twice, but he actually sterilized everything, which means the basement, I think, is cleaner than it's probably ever been. <laughs> and I mean, I was kind of amazed. And I was thinking about this, I was like, man, if, if, if the way we've been telling the gospel story, we've had a system that it's not been bad, it's worked for what it is, but some of the cracks in the chink have started to show and there's been some sewage. You know, there's been people who've been greatly harmed, including me, by that system and by that story. So we need to reevaluate it. And you know what God usually does? It brings a baptism, the fire, the Holy Spirit, water, come on over. Flood of that basement. <laughs> Get that sewage all mixed up in there. It's disgusting. And when God is doing something new in the church, like I think God is doing something new in the wider church right now, I think there is a massive reformation that is going on in the way we tell the story of Jesus as God is reforming the ways that we've harmed people. Like it gets kind of muddy. It gets kind of gross. You know, all the sewage is kind of mixed in. You can't quite see what's going on. But man, when everything settles, it's going to be better. I've got like all this hope that what God is doing in the church right now is this amazing, incredible refining that is happening, right? And that when, when we submit to this process of being baptized by this spirit of love and by this water that's going over us, like all things will be made new.
And in a couple weeks, we're going to be having baptisms. <laughs> and the way I talk about baptism, I don't even know that you need to, to believe that like Jesus is the king. Like, I confess Jesus is Lord, but I think you just have to be like, I'm willing to follow his way. I'm willing to follow this way in the world of saying, I'm going to relinquish my rivalries. I'm going to relinquish scapegoating. I'm going to try and work on behalf of the vulnerable. And I'm going to follow Jesus in doing that. And maybe you've been brought up in a story of the gospel that did not produce good things for you. Or maybe you feel like you've been a priest mediating a story that's been harmful to people, that's actually participated in scapegoating others. And you're like, man, I just want to renew that. I want to be part of this priesthood of people who are mediating the love of God and the peace of God and the protection of God for the vulnerable in the world. Baptism is a great way to do that. It's like a meaningful sign between you and God of participating in this thing that God is doing in the wider church. Did I have anything else? I think that's it. Let's stand up. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just... Oh, I had you stand up. Well, maybe I'll just pray instead of doing the guided meditation. Let's just pray. (laughs) I'm a mess. It's been a a rough two weeks. (laughs) Praise Jesus in the mess. (laughs) So, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much um, that your son was willing to come down here and show us what it means to live a life of love. And I thank you, Lord, that you're you're opening our eyes and teaching us the story of unmasking this scapegoating. And we know that when a scapegoat is unmasked, it can make things even more anxious. But I ask, Lord, that you would be our peace in the midst of anxiety. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to know who you are and who we are in you. And when your son was baptized, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm pleased. Lord, I ask that you would help us to find our identity in that space. We are your sons, your daughters. We are your children, beloved. And you're well pleased with us. And we make ourselves available to be priests in this world, mediating this presence of love, this spirit of love into the world around us. And we mediate the story of a God who says, you are not to go and sacrifice people. You're not to scapegoat. You're not to do violence to people. You're to love your neighbor as yourself. And we ask that your spirit of the advocate would infuse every pore of our being to help us be those mediators in this world. Give us eyes to see and hearts that are open and soft. We make ourselves available to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.